This podcast was recorded on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, who are the traditional owners of the land. Merdeka! 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 The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello, my name is Tito Ambio and I'm very happy to be back here again um, after the election. I think everyone's shocked about the result of the election. What do you think? Um, it has been a roller coaster ride for everyone, I think, um, and the roller coaster ride ends on a high for one of the presidential and vice presidential pairs. Prabowo and Gibran, who is most likely going to be the next president and vice president of Indonesia. Now, what do we, the co-hosts of Talking Indonesia, think about the result? Who are the winners and losers? What are some of the most interesting things about the campaign? And what are some of the things behind Prabowo's success? And how did a pack of cigarettes save me, Tito Ambio, from possible jail time during the era of Suharto? In this episode of Talking Indonesia, the co-hosts Gemma Purdy, Liz Kramer, Jackie Baker, and me, Tito Ambio, from Aramati University, we got together to just, you know, chat about the results of the election, a bit of our analysis, our hopes and fears for the future of Indonesian democracy. So, hope you enjoy it. What do we know right now? So what's the outcome of the Indonesian election? Can we talk about winners and losers and others in between? Who wants to start? Okay, well, Tito, what we know, just two days or less than two days from the election, where we know that nearly 205 million Indonesians voted, extraordinary, really, for five different elections, actually, for five different levels of government. But I guess everyone's really focused here on the presidential results, the results of the presidential election. And I think, you know, we'll talk about the results for the uh, for the House of Representatives, the legislature as well. But yeah, Indonesia's got this interesting method where they have a quick count and the results come through quite fast, like within hours, where they choose about 2,000 randomly selected polling booths and different groups will monitor those so we can compare across these booths and the results. And I think it's around almost 100% now, we're talking more than 90% of those quick counts have been done. And what we see is around somewhere between 58 and 59% have voted for the Prabowo Gibran ticket, followed by the Anis Mahaman ticket, which is about 25%, and then Ganjar and Mahfud with around 16% of the vote. So that, mm. that's kind of what everyone's focused on right now. But of course, there's there's results trickling through from all the provinces about about the other outcomes too. I was just going to add that I believe Prabowo has declared victory. So he's come out and said that he's confident that he's won the election. Of course, the other two candidate pairings have cautioned people and asked them to wait for the official results, which we won't get for some time. But I think... However you feel about the Prabowo-Gibran pairing, the the general vibe, I think, is that people are like, yeah, they've won. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, Anthony Albanese and several other leaders of nations have already called Prabowo to congratulate him. Yeah. So, I mean, so it's basically 
unless something really drastic happens of a fait accompli, I think. Yeah. Jackie, who do you think? Well, we know that problem is most likely to be the winner, but yeah, how, how, what's your reaction to, to the outcome? I think it was remarkable to have such a decisive win. I mean, moving into the weekend, some pundits were calling it a first round win. I was being cautious and thought that we'd probably get to second round because in order to get to a first round win, you need to get 50 plus one. And, you know, Proboa was polling really well and his his polls had been escalating for the past year, effectively. They had just been on the rise and on the rise. But in the last two weeks of the campaign, some people suggested that they were starting to plateau and the rises were being experienced by the Anis campaign. Um, and so there was some question about whether he would really have such a decisive win. But I think the final outcome is quite incredible. I mean, what is it, 58, sort of somewhere in the vicinity of 56 to 59%. I mean, that is a really remarkable victory that even outstrips sort of the most optimistic of the polls that came out on the weekend prior to the election. Yeah, I mean, his own team were were quite blown away, to be fair. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it was... Yeah, I mean, I I think, you know, a lot of... A lot of people were saying, obviously, on social media, a lot of his supporters were hoping for a first-run victory or, you know, one-run victory. But I think it was out of hope more than anything else, right? Out of optimism more than anything else. I think many of, yeah, probably supporters were also quite surprised by this. Do you want to talk about losing? <laughs> yeah. Who- <laughs> <laughs> you have. I mean, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? I mean, we all thought this, this was going to happen, that the way that it's gone with the one, two, three rankings for the presidential candidates, but that Ganjar Mahfoud have really failed so badly, um, mm. 16% or something like that. It's 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 really extraordinary as much as the 60% potentially that Pro Bowl gets is amazing. So, but on the other hand, you know, these things are so complicated in Indonesia and we see that even, yeah, You've heard Ganjar on the news, as Liz said, saying, no, let's wait for the results. And when pressed about the results, given, you know, his very low numbers, he says, yes, it is an anomaly, isn't it, that where I would previously, or whether, sorry, where the PDIP candidate would previously have scored very well, we haven't done that in those places. So, yeah, there's a lot of soul searching for the PDIP, obviously, Wow. And we've spoken here on the podcast, you know, with many people about about the processes to nominate Ganjar during that period. So, yeah, Jackie, what is your opinion on it? I think, you know, we're talking a lot about the, these percentage outcomes, right? And on one side, you've got Prabhu Gibran with this remarkable 60% outcome or somewhere in that vicinity. And then you've got Ganjar doing exceptionally poorly, much more poorly than I think people would have predicted, and poorly in his home turf, right, of, of central Java. And in the meanwhile, you've got Anis sort of around 24%. I think, hope you know, positive thinkers were hoping he'd get around 30%. I think the problem with some of these numbers at the moment for the current discussion is that, I mean, you, you would be familiar that in the days, the two days leading towards the the election, there was a lot of discussion about how fair was this vote, right? And how, how 
not how free this vote was, but how fair this vote was. Uh, there was a lot of discussion about how Jokowi had curtailed the nature of the contestation, how he was throwing the kind of apparatus, authorities and the budgets of the state to this win for his son and his nominated heir, Prabowo. So there was a lot of discussion with both in the terms of kind of reporting, but also a remarkable video called Dirty Vote, a movie mm. called Dirty Vote, fronted by three very impressive academics who put forward an academic argument, right, there, an evidenced academic argument over a period of about an hour or two hours outlining all the sort of violations to the electoral process. And I think in the, that context, so as we headed towards election day, there were concerns around uh, civil society and uh, democracy activists about the nature of this vote. And then we come out with these outcomes. Now, these outcomes, in my mind, do follow the general pattern of where we were going with the polling. So they're not so outlandish, but I guess one debate we're seeing happening online and in the media and certainly within the campaign teams is, you know, are these really true, are these really true outcomes? Were were there serious violations in the counting process such that they've given Prabowo a bounce of somewhere like five five to 10% such that he would win a first round where before maybe it wasn't so clear and that they've really gutted the the other candidates such as Ganjar. So I, I think these outcomes as decisive, I think as they appear, they are really raising questions that to my mind need need to be discussed but, but really undermine the electoral system more generally. And they make me worried, not just like whatever Prabowo might bring in his presidency, but there is a sort of sense that perhaps voting isn't a great system so much. And there's a lot of discussion, on, you know, amongst my academic friends about, yeah, there's no way, there's no way these 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 figures are true. And I think that is an incredibly important discussion, but also I, I am concerned about the the long-term impact on the credibility of democracy with the outcome of these discussions. Well, Liz, you, you've written a lot about this, about, you know, money politics, anti-corruption in Indonesia. What, what, have you watched the film, Dirty Vote? I have watched the film, yes. Yeah. And it was, I mean, I thought it was a very well-put-together, well-argued thesis on all of the different aspects of the political system that Jokowi has been able to mobilize in order to support his favored candidates. But I mean, I think one of the things that really comes out of that film for me is, you know, with the social media personalities that I engage with and the people I follow, this film was a huge talking point. People were posting about it, people are chatting about it you know, various news outlets were reporting on it, but has it really impacted the outcome of the election? It looks like it hasn't. And so I wonder whether this discussion about these concerns about democracy and the path that Indonesia is taking is happening in a microcosm of, you know, the internet or sort of activist networks and Average everyday Indonesian people are just not that engaged with these kinds of discussions. And that kind of comes back to a point I was thinking about yesterday where, you know, you one of your question prompts was who are the winners in this, mm. you know, in this outcome? 
And I was like, well, people who don't really care about politics are big winners because they're not going to have to go through (laughs) any more campaigns. They're not going to have to worry about, you know, who they're going to vote for in the second round. And I wonder if that comes back to one of the arguments that the Kosondua team were putting forward, that if we can get this done in one round, like, that's mm. it. There's a decisive outcome. We can just move forward and get on with it rather than drag it out. That was absolutely what they did in the last week of campaigning, that they changed it up to really that was the message that cut through, like, let's do this in one round. And, yeah, Liz, maybe it is about that, like, let's just get this done and the extra 5 or 8% or whatever it was or 10 got him over the line. I mean, I think that, yeah, when Jackie makes a good point about whether or not this was free or fair and, you know, you can look at, okay, what happened on polling day and were there anomalies, you know, with the voting forms and, you know, all the rest of it on actual polling day and there will be and there are and there's already many reports of this going on, which is unfortunately normal enough in Indonesian elections. But as, you know, Jackie's alluding to, is it fair? And I think that's where we need to, like, consider what came before and that's what Dirty Vote wanted us to think about Mm. or Indonesians to think about is like all of the build-up, how we got to this position, all of the, you know, the campaigning behind the scenes but also, yeah, all of the stuff around the constitutional court decision, about, about Gibran, all of it, layering, layering, layering. And so I guess... I I thought to myself, they've left it too late. I know why they did it when they did it. It was during the cooling off period where there was no campaigning. So they felt they had clear air maybe. Mm. Who knows? Maybe they just wanted to be careful because a lot of the stuff they said could get them in trouble, you know, potentially if someone wanted to bring, bring problems for them. So, yeah, it was a little bit late in the in the piece perhaps but it also yeah it started a conversation and the optimistic you know come you know commentators here Tito are saying look at least people are talking about democracy what it means the threats to it and maybe more of us will start agitating and you know trying to protect or fight for democracy so yeah, for me, it's like looking at the neutrality or lack thereof of civil servants. That was a really big thing that Dirty Vote really, really targeted, not just Jokowi, obviously, mm. but all the way down. Liz knows a lot about that <laughs> from your work, Liz, grassroots with political parties. So, yeah, I mean, winners and losers, it's, yeah, it's not clear cut for sure for Indonesians I agree yeah I think maybe if I can add uh, one of the losers here would be minorities right because I think one of the things about um, I saw the former governor of West Java Ridwan Kamil who said look you know this victory of Prabowo is basically evidence that the uh, the the silent uh, majority uh, winning and you know the noisy minority should basically should not be listened to but this is where where I think he's getting it wrong, right? Because um, if you know he's he's on the side of Prabowo, obviously, but if his side cannot hear and listen to the noisy minority, especially with Prabowo's history of how he dealt with minorities in the past or in you know, a political activist in the past, you know that's I think that's a big loss for democracy in Indonesia if we are led by people who only discount noisy minority as just noisy people who are not 
worth listening to. It's a danger. I mean, we've all heard silent majority before and it's a scary phrase. Mm. (laughs) It is. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. You mentioned the campaigning, Gemma. Is there anything that you want to say, Liz or Jackie, about the campaigning periods? What were some of the debates or ideas that struck you the most? Or, yeah, were any of it effective? Any comments about the campaigning, Liz or Jackie and Gemma? Uh, Jackie, you want to say something first, and then and then Liz will go with you. I mean, the I think for me the most striking part of the campaign was the reinvention of Pro Subianto. Right? I mean, he has gone from on the stump, roaring about foreign influence, being a presenting himself quite unabashedly as a sort of populist authoritarian, and now he's gone to cuddly uncle with a chubby, cute face doing little dances for TikTok videos. I mean, and he his campaign was was noticeable for its absence, I think, of policy and its reiteration that they were just going to continue the legacy of Jokowi which I would call a kind of developmentalist legacy, but they talk more about, you know, infrastructure, uh, downstreaming and so forth. But, you know, it was a real distraction, I think, in many ways from what what, does ser- what is seriously Prabowo going to do as president? And, mm. you know, we're left to kind of infer from previous campaigns and for perhaps from Garindra's own party policies as to what he's planning for the next five years. So, yeah, to me, the most remarkable element of the campaign was the reinvention of Prabowo to to cuddly uncle who would never hurt a fly. It was really like whiplash watching him campaign in, in in this election, given, you know, his run in every political presidential election since, what, 2009. And he's been... I think fairly consistent until this year, until this election, where he's portrayed himself as being a much softer version. I think, you know, maybe with the relationship that he developed with Jokowi in terms of, you know, being his appointed heir, having his team look at, you know, what worked for Jokowi in his elections. You know, he was very personable. He had the reputation for Blusukan. What can we do to make Prabowo seem more relatable, more, I don't know, a more welcoming candidate? And he really went all in on that. And it's worked. So I can't I can't see him reverting back to his strongman persona in his presidency particularly given that this is his first term. So he's probably already got an eye to the second, uh, to the election in five years' time, which would, you know, presumably he would contest barring any kind of medical issue or major concern. So I think, you know, the Prabowo that we've sort of had in the election, I think is probably what we're going to see for the next five years. I mean, there's no reason for him to change tactic because it was so successful. Mm. Mm, that's the million-dollar question everybody's asking. When is the real Prabowo going to come out? But, you know, maybe the guy's just mellowed with age. I mean, perhaps. <laughs> um, it's Yeah, it is absolutely extraordinary. I agree. The campaign, I mean, hats off to whoever ran that campaign and the, obviously the money poured in. But, you know, Gurindra have done, and, you know, I'm talking about Gurindra, the whole 
the whole of it, but Gorindra itself, his party, have kind of gone from zero to here in a mm. you know pretty short time from about what they contested the 2009 elections, I think. But, yeah, really quick, but they've had a huge amount of money behind them. But, yeah, it was clever. I agree 100% that the campaign was about personality and they were able to finesse that. I mean, the Gibran edition, you know, Chiching just cashed in. Yes, he probably was was likely to have been the leading candidate with whomever he he had as a partner, I think. But yeah, this really just did went so well. But if you watched the campaign, sorry, on election night when they came out to do their speeches, and Gibran was literally shell shocked. So he just had, I mean, he doesn't smile much. He's a funny guy, <laughs> but he, you know, he was like didn't know what to do and then he was you know had to be cajoled into doing a little speech by Prabowo and then when he did he was like all he could do was just apologize to anyone he'd offended you know it was just like I don't know how I got here. Apparently after he went to the TPS and lodged his vote he went and had a nap so he was probably quite groggy Gemma. (laughs) The guy had no idea what was coming. It's like, <laughs> yep. Yeah. Such think, an interesting pairing, those two. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when they first met. Oh. <laughs> like, they don't seem to have anything in common. I can't. I, can't, I, I do can't wonder whether we're going to. Friends. I wonder whether we're going to start to see Gibran's Balenciaga shoes and shirts again. Oh. I've missed those yeah. as a. You know, I do like the catwalk and I think Gibran's got good style and we haven't seen it. Well, he, yeah. he, rocked his, he rocked his shirt, you know, the blue and white check or whatever. Mm. He had it open with a T-shirt underneath, so he was kind of, you know, cool <laughs> young man. Yeah. I, I think on the other two candidates, it's worth saying I think Anis actually ran a pretty good campaign. I expected probably more gaffes, but he was a real natural in the debates. He ran a reasonably good campaign. I think he should be looking to 2029 and getting some more facial re- face recognition across the across the national across the country and he may be a genuine contestant in the next presidential campaign and i was very also surprised by ganjar and the sort of the emptiness of the ganjar campaign mm. and 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 of ganjar himself who didn't really perform I think, in the way that we had expected to even, you know, just a year ago. And, I mean, certainly Ganjar was a little wedged. His party obviously nominated Jokowi and yet Jokowi had sort of was had obviously thrown his lot in with Prabhu and his son. So, you know, were they opposition? What kind of platform could they present? Are they offering change or continuity? I mean, Ganja was stuck there. But nonetheless, he I think he performed noticeably poorly, given what a charismatic figure he is as governor of central Java. Yeah, I mean, you have to imagine that his campaign was flip-flopping and it must have taken its toll. Because, yeah, in the beginning he was, we are loyal to Jokowi's policies, etc., and because of the PDIP base. And then had to flip quite, you know, late in the piece to be, you know, we're in opposition and we're, you know, we're going to be critical of of the present government. Very hard one for him, obviously. Mm. Now, this might be a controversial question, but, you know, some of the analysis out there basically are saying, and also from what we know from watching Dirty Vote, 
did any of the campaigning you think did you do you think that made any difference to how people voted because it seems like uh, a lot of people out there think the work has been done before far before the campaigning even started mm. uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah i i the campaign ideally in a sort of theoretical sense the campaign starts as soon as the previous one ends so mm. the fact that and Prabowo lost the previous presidential election by quite a small margin so if he had already made the decision that he was going to try again I don't know at what point he decided I can imagine that Gurindra and his you know party vehicle behind him would have been thinking to 2024 as soon as they knew that he hadn't won the 2019 election so yeah I mean whether we can consider that formal campaigning or not is one thing, but, you know, working with elected representatives of the executive to try and get influence through those mechanisms, I'm sure was happening. We saw that in Dirty Vote through mm. Jokowi's appointments and sort of decisions and things that he said around the terms for elected executive officials. But I think too, the it's always hard to know exactly how much influence mm. the, the specified campaign period has, right? Like that period of a certain number of weeks when people are officially allowed to campaign and hold rallies mm. and, and do all of that kind of stuff. But, you know, we've, we've all seen that the campaign starts in earnest at least six months to a year before that. And I think that period was really important. I think that especially in terms of Gibran and introducing him to the population in terms of getting his profile up because, you know, he's the mayor of Solo, but, I mean, I hadn't really heard too much about what he'd been doing in Solo prior to becoming the vice presidential yeah. candidate. So I think in terms of, of Gibran particularly, that period was really important in raising his profile and building his recognition and support amongst the base that they were targeting, young people, young yeah. voters who maybe don't know that much about Prabowo, but, you know, the sort of TikTok generation. <laughs> so, yeah, I think in terms of the presidential election, yeah, I think it did make a difference, but maybe yeah. other people have other opinions. Yeah, before, yeah, I'd like to hear what you think about that, Jackie and Gemma, but I think, you know, before we move on to that, you know, people talk about the transform. Well, we we did talk about the transformation of Prabowo, but also yeah, the transformation of Gibran, right? Because I remember an interview he did with I think Kate Lamb from the Guardian, where he was just you know like he was saying I'm just interested in business, you know that's all I'm interested in, you know, and he was yeah like all about fashion and you know it was yeah like what you said, Jackie, like looking really cool, you know. But now selling motorbike, so yeah, selling motorbike, <laughs> you know, like it was all about business, and then suddenly. Yeah, he's out there, and like, yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe he is also yeah shell shocked, as you said before, Gemma. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think there was any point where I saw him campaign where I thought he looked comfortable. Never. He 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 always looked slightly uncomfortable, slightly you know awkward. It'll be really interesting to see how he moves into the vice presidential role because it doesn't seem like politics comes naturally to him at all. 
Yeah, you know, like in classrooms, right? We have the photo of president and vice president in every class in Indonesia. I just can't, <laughs> I can't imagine the pair of them. That's so true. It's just, I don't know. I can't imagine it. I can't imagine Gibran and Prabowo facing, you know, yeah. me in a classroom every day. Anyway, yeah. Um, I think yeah. he's, he, some of what you're saying is really best summed up by Kasai's slogans, actually, for PSI. So Kasai, the younger brother, became head of Partai Solidaritas Indonesia, which performed, yeah, you know, not not a lot of... Not A bounce, I, let's say, a, you know, a one, one to two percent bounce, but and not a lot of seeing Kasai. But I do remember when Kasai took over as chair of Partei Solidaritat Indonesia, he had these giant posters which was called "Politik Dengan Chill," and I feel like that's a great, that's a great way of summing up those two brothers. That said, Gibran was kind of notoriously. A bit malicious, I think, in the debates. There was a lot of mm. kind of hissing and carrying on. Some people did cry foul. But maybe that was a reflection of, yeah, just as you said, that awkwardness on, st- yeah. on stage. In the coaching, he was coached to the hilt for those debates. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And it was kind of presented as well. I mean, I saw some commentary where people were like, you know, you're just attacking him because he's young. Young people should be able to criticise, you know, older people, policies. And because I think the debate was framed around this, like, Ngasopan, right? Like he wasn't hmm. giving people, giving his elders the deference that maybe culturally people thought they should be afforded. And so the counter to that was, and I know there are quite a few SI people who came out and, and talked about, you know, like, Young people deserve to be heard and young people should be able to challenge the status mm. quo and, and challenge authority. So, yeah, I mean, he was kind of fulfilling that role as well as being like the representative of young people. Now, exactly how representative he is of young people in Indonesia is a different question, but he was certainly positioned in that way. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, the elephant in the room, though, is that who actually is he representing? His dad. So probably need to talk about that. Domestic <laughs> 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 politics, which really just faded away as a thing. I mean, yes, of course, in our social media accounts, there were people who wanted to talk about it, but it was not really pushed because maybe the other candidates didn't really want to go there for whatever reason. Have their own dynasties to protect. <laughs> or future ones, you never know. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, this is the, the, now this is the melding together of two very powerful families in Indonesia mm. that we're seeing. The Jojo Hadi Kusumo family have finally achieved what they've been looking to achieve mm. for probably a couple of decades now. And Jokowi, the same. So, you know, quite an extraordinary moment that people, you know, need to talk more about. But, you know, lots of the commentary has been around Indonesians don't really care about the dynasty thing. They've got other questions, other considerations. I don't know why they don't. I mean, it's an interesting... Oh, sorry. Sorry. No, no, sorry. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, I was about to say about you know Perindo and Haritanu, right? <laughs> he was trying to build his own dynasty, and I didn't even know this until I read about it yesterday. But how yeah, he has his five children as his candidates in this, in the polit in 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 the in, in the election. So yeah, it, it is. You know, people say our oh, dynasty doesn't matter and all, but yeah, I think yeah, I never really thought about it that way, Jemma. But you're right. This is the combination of the old dynasty and the new dynasty, and mm. yeah, it's. It's it's a powerful thing. It's a compelling so, yeah, thing for the voter. I mean, obviously they're persuaded by it. At the at the final well, at the rally on election night, Prabol got up, he thanked everyone, right? All of his coalition, all of his team. And then he got to his ex-wife, okay, obviously Sahato's daughter. Yeah. And she got the biggest cheer of anyone. It was expensive. <laughs> they had to. We had to wait like quite some time before Prabol could move on to the next person. So I feel like they've kind of brought into this idea of like big happy family reuniting or mm. whatever the hell they've been sucked into. But it's a very yeah. interesting thing how they've campaigned as a family, even though you know, there was divorce there anyway. Yeah, and I, I saw someone writing on Facebook, a friend who said, this is not New Order 2.0, this is New Order 1.0. You know, it's exactly the same. Sorry, Liz, I cut you off before what you were about to say. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I think an interesting counter example or something to compare to is Puan Maharani and Megawati mm. and her attempts to try and get her dynastic legacy going and I mean yes Puan is in the Depa Ed and she does hold the senior position there but you know there's always been talk about her being a, a vice presidential candidate or being you know involved in the presidency some way and that just hasn't eventuated so yeah. it, I mean somebody would have to do this woman? research it, yes I mean is it because she's a woman I don't mm. know but I mean that's kind of an interesting counterpoint to think about if we're thinking about dynastic politics because she's been trying to do that for such a long time and mm. it seems like hasn't really been able to make headway. So what is it about Jokowi and his family that has allowed him to sort of slip into the system in this way, in a way that other people have tried to and not been successful? Yeah. So what's going to happen now? Prabowo is, <laughs> is likely going to be president. What yeah, what do you think will happen now or what do you think should happen now? Anyone want to comment on that? Yeah, so for for the immediate moment, Jokowi is still president and will mm. be until October. I think that's important to remember. And Jokowi has some important pieces of legislation that he wants to get across. So for you know, theoretically and in terms of for a public administration perspective, nothing should be changing because Jokowi is still president, the current apparatus stays and there is not a big changeover until October. But of course, I think one thing that everyone will be keeping a very keen eye on is the relationship between Jokowi and Prabowo in these coming months, over the next few months, and the coalitions that will be forming in the parliament. We've seen that the parliamentary outcomes are very different. Unlike the presidential outcomes, which I think did track broadly with with the polls, the parliamentary outcomes were totally different at the at the national legislature. So 
there was discussion about whether Garindra would take the the prize of the largest seats in the national parliament, which so you would have a Prabowo presidency and his party would be the largest party in the parliament. That has not occurred in any shape or form. There was some discussion that Garindra was going to get up to 20% as it easily eclipse PDIP. Now, PDIP has taken a bit of a fall from the part past parliament makeup, but they're still the biggest party. I think it's somewhere at 16 to 17%. Is that right? Garindra didn't really move, if anything. Up a little, up a little. Yeah, so one or two percent. So they were at about 13, is that right, percent? Yeah. Yeah, so and then there's, but the big winners of the parliament, the surprise winners was Golkar, which which did a re- relatively good, I mean, I don't know if that's the Golkar campaigning machine or some people seem to indicate that Golkar was doing advertising which suggested that Proboa was kind of in their party. <laughs> Proboa was a Golkar guy and then certainly they have a long history, right? So maybe that he got a bounce out of that. But So it's these coalitions that are going to be so central to what is going to be the next government. I mean, I think what was so instructive, Gemma, was your podcast with Marcus Mietzner and the, the discussing his book, the, the coalitions that presidents mm-hmm. make. And now we're in a position of asking, well, will the president, the new president, Proboa, be entering into a coalition with the largest party in the legislature, PDIP? Apparently they're his, you know, his sworn enemy in as per the campaign. But the way coalition, Indonesian coalition making works and the way PDIP works, PDIP does not want to see opposition ever again. Uh, I imagine they'll be in a coalition pretty quick. Mm. And that will be very interesting. That. Mm. Well, I mean, you know, that's exactly right. What's going to happen? How will this all fall out? They've got eight months to work it out pretty much. It's a long time, as I heard on someone was saying on Najwa, she had the show the other night, like anything can happen, you know, in in the space of time. Nasdem were held on strong, right? So they were in the PDIP camp with, sorry, no, no Anis. the camp, mm. right? They've got, they held steady with about 9%. And I heard last night that Surya Palo was going to meet Mega, so he may be jumping. Yeah, who's going to, you know, what we want to see in Indonesia is a strong proper robust opposition who's got Mm. the guts to do that because as Marcus said in the past no one because it's all about having a piece of the pie and you know getting in on the coalition but wouldn't it be cool if PDIP and Nasdem and I don't know one of some of the others PKS I mean we can't see it happening but it would be nice (laughs) to have a you know a strong opposition to hold the government to account in the ways that, you know, we kind of expect democracies to have that measure. So, yeah, it's it's a fun times. At the moment, as it stands, the coalition around that ran and supported Prabowo Gibran have around 42 43%. Hmm. That's, you know, could change a lot. But, yeah, so PDIP with its 16% is going to need to, yeah, come on board with the others or yeah, find a way to perhaps reimagine itself as an opposition party. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think, you know, just to end, we've all been studying, watching Indonesia for a long time. Is there any other observations, hopes, fears you want to talk about, about this election? Oh, (laughs) hopes, fears. I mean, 
to be honest, while I was surprised that it, I was a little bit surprised that it didn't go to a second round, I'm not really surprised by the outcome. I think that the trajectory in electoral politics in Indonesia really did point to this outcome. So I can't say that I'm surprised, but I do think that in terms of concerns, like what you were saying before about minority voices and people, I think one of the things that really does concern me about Indonesia, and this is not new, but it sort of came to the fore in this election, is the ability of people to criticise, to critique the government, to critique policies. We saw you know, a lot of people we know, university lecturers and university administrators come out during this election and and call out some of the behaviour of the government and that in itself was controversial. Mm. And, you know, for us as, as academics in Australia where academic freedom is a, is a tenant of our work and being able to speak up should be a protected right, there it's a risk and the same with the the academics or, or um, people who put together the dirty vote video. I mean, I've heard that they've been reported to the police. We don't know what's going to come from that. But any time that you put your name to a criticism of the government, you put yourself at risk. And I think that was made really clear in this election. And that's a concern that I have for the future, that that risk just grows to the extent that either people really have to put themselves on the line every time that they want to say something about the government or say something about Mm. a politician or they fade into silence because there's just too much of a risk to to come out and and criticise and even to make really valid critiques of things that are happening. I mean, the Dirty Vote video was full of examples that... You know, I mean, of course, there's always room for debate, but there was evidence behind the things that they were saying. I mean, they put forward some strong arguments and still they're being reported. Mm. So, yeah, that's one from me. Yeah. Gemma, what do you think? Oh, absolutely. 100% agree with Liz. And I guess, you know, to echo what is also being said by many who have been very fearful of a Prabowo presidency, including those who were, you know, around in 1998 during the turmoil in Indonesia at the time, who have been part of the groups that have been um, activists for, you know, shedding light on revealing the truth and seeking justice for the kidnapping victims at that time. These mysteries, they are still mysteries about what happened Mm. to those who disappeared at the time. And, you know, we know that there are many indications that Prabol knows more than he's letting on. So regardless of whether he's the guy that, you know, made the order, we know that he he enacted those orders and he knows more. So what we cannot hope for now is that that will be revealed. Surely not. It would be too damaging to him. And so those who are, you know, wanting to pursue human rights, you know, kinds of causes in Indonesia, particularly, you know, transitional justice issues are going to be really upset by this result. They are upset by this result. So, yeah, that that is the concern mm. about how Indonesia might pursue those kinds of issues in the future. I mean, Jokowi was very, very disappointing on those issues. He he kind of did a little few things in the, you know, the last year that, that, you know, assisted in some way to bring into light, say, 65, around around 65. But, yeah, very disappointing in, disappointed in Jokowi and I'm afraid they're not 
going to find much hope in a probable presidency. Mm. Closing remarks from you, Jackie, what do you think? I think the thing that I'll be looking for over the next month or two will be looking, will be gauging the political temperature around decentralised democracy. Because I think in the, over the last few years, we have seen the major parties waver and in fact come out against the notion of direct elections, particularly for governors, but also for mayors and so forth. We are going to see in the next few months a piece of legislation, the Jakarta was the Deca-E legislation. I think I've got that wrong, actually. It's the Jakarta legislation. And in that legislation, which everyone expects will be passed, the Jakarta governor will no longer be an elected position. And in fact, that position will be an appointee likely to be the vice president, aka Gibran. So I am very curious about how debates about Indonesia's vibrant, very well-loved and remarkably what is it? Remarkably, yeah. So Indonesia, sorry, can you delete all of that? I'll be really interested to see how Indonesia's very well-loved decentralised democracy fares over the next few months as we've seen the major parties sour against this system and, and trying to block off politics to the national level and to a, level, a sort of cohort of well-known elites. Mm. Well, thank you very much, Jackie, Gemma, and Liz. And yeah, um, I think that's it. You're not going to end with your biggest fears, Tito? Yeah. <laughs> oh, just, Tito. What will you be watching, Tito? What will you be watching? Come on. Well, I think, I think for me it is, you know, I actually wrote a tweet this morning that kind of, you know, I think people liked the tweet. It went a bit, you know, uh, a, bit, a bit viral. But I think I was just telling a story about when I was young in Indonesia, I found a book on Marxism at a library and I got so excited because I was this nerdy kid in you know in an SMI in Indonesia and and I put it in my school bag and I was so unlucky because that day was when the school decided to uh, do a, a bag searches like a random bag search and I was so scared you know I was really, really scared because I was like what is going to happen to me I have a book on Marxism an illegal book in my bag Luckily, the, the teacher who searched my bag, just, you know, he looked at the book, he looked at me, and he just had this horrified look. But now I'm thinking back, it's like, is he scared for him? Is he scared for me? Mm. Um, because that was what it was like living under Suharto. You know, it was just like everyone was scared, you know, what is going to happen? Luckily, he just you know, he looked at my bag. Luckily, there was a pack of cigarettes, which is also banned at school. So he picked up the picked the, the pack of cigarettes. He looked at me with this meaning. I'm worried about that. SMR. <laughs> and oh, it's he, much more normal than you think, Gemma. It's more, It's very normal. <laughs> and then, yeah, he just said, you know, you know, you you're not allowed to smoke. I'm gonna grab this smoke. But and then he just looked at me. I think it was he saved my life that day. I think. Yeah. I'm not wow. gonna say anything about this book, you know, but but that was what it was like. And I think a part of me feels like oh i don't know if many of the young indonesians living now know what it was like you know living under an authoritarian leader I'm not saying trouble will be authoritarian but you know it's he was a part of it so i hope we will have a strong opposition whether it's inside parliament or outside of parliament so hopefully yeah i'm still optimistic uh, especially for outside of parliament that's a beautiful story tito and yeah really it really it really brings it home, right? Like what it was, what, what it was like to live under the new order. And mm. also 
people don't read anymore. So I'm just amazed that you actually had a book in your bag. I'd be delighted to see a book in somebody's bag these days. <laughs> and that is it for Talking Indonesia Special Election Edition. Everyone, thank you for listening. And please do not forget to leave a review on the podcast wherever and whenever you are listening to the podcast from. Five stars if you like what we do, but also just run an honest review for us and find us on Twitter on Indonesia at Melbourne 2. Sorry, it's not Twitter anymore. It's x.com. Um, and you can also find us online at Indonesia at Melbourne. See you next time.